0: You may be seated and invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 and we're going to be taking a look today at, oh dear. okay there it is, uh, we're going to be taking a look today in Galatians chapter 6 and verses 11 through 18. We're going to be finishing up the book of Galatians. I hope it has been a blessing to you, just to let you know, the next book that we go through will be 2nd, or I'm so sorry, it will be 1st Kings, not 2nd Kings, uh, which is a book that uh, many Christians never reach in their reading through the Bible or if they do manage to get through 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st Chronicles usually is the the process, so uh, hopefully we'll be able to go through that together and learn much about what Christ uh, was doing through the prophets in the Old Testament and the progress of redemption in that period, but um, now we're going to turn our attention to this last portion of Paul's letter to his beloved Galatians, and to us. We remember that these words were written to us as well, so let's ask the Lord now to bless them to our understanding. Please join me. God, our gracious Father, we pray that you would be with us today, and that you would help us to understand your word. I pray that you would help me to preach it. I pray, O Lord, that you would take away the distractions that come in whenever your word is being preached. We know, O Lord, whenever the word is going forth, that's a, a moment of spiritual warfare because we know our great enemies do not want us to profit from it. The world, the flesh, and the devil want to draw our attention anywhere else right now. And so our phones will go off. We'll be desiring to text. Our thoughts will wander. We'll hold grudges. The Lord will stir up our children, to, uh, or rather, our, the enemy will stir up our children to restlessness. But we know, O oh Lord, you can thwart his evil aims, and we pray that you would. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be attentive. And as the seed is falling, we pray, Lord, that it would find good earth, and that it would multiply greatly and produce that abundant harvest that you desire. Now, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 6. And as I said, I'm going to be reading from verse 11 through to the end of the chapter. And I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. These would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ for not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen and amen. Amen. Richard Wormbrand, it's a name that you may remember from Voice of the Martyr. Some of you may have read actually at some point his book, Tortured for Christ, or seen the movie version of that. Richard Wormbrand was a man who was very much like the Apostle Paul in many ways. He too was born into a Jewish family. Of course, he was not born into a uh, Jewish family in Tarsus. He was born into a Jewish family in Bucharest in Romania, but he was converted. He met the Lord through the ministrations, the preachings of a carpenter of German descent, a man by the name of Christian Wolkies who preached the gospel to him and his wife Sabina. And through the Holy Spirit's working, they believed and were wondrously saved. Richard felt called by the Lord, and so he entered into the ministry. After a period of training, he became an Anglican minister, and then later on, he became a Lutheran minister. But he was a man who was on fire for the gospel, desired all of his fellow Romanians to hear it. Of course, uh, if you know your history, if you know that he was converted in 1938, you'll remember that very shortly after that, the Second World War began, And he was in constant danger from uh, 39 to 45 because, of course, uh, he was of Jewish ancestry. But he managed to avoid being sent, and his family managed to avoid being sent to a concentration camp. But unfortunately, Romania did not have its freedom after the Second World War. The Germans were pushed out, but the Russians came in almost immediately and began to reorganize everything along communist lines. They wanted all of the churchmen to toe the Marxist line. The churches could remain open, the Russians said, as long as they preached Marxism instead of Christ. Rornbrand was not willing to do that. And in 1948, he was arrested on his way to a divine service, and he was uh, forced to spend the next 17 years in... Custody in Romanian prisons being tortured by the Romanian secret police unceasingly. There were many times when he should have died. The torture that he endured was unbearable. The conditions that he lived in were terrible. He caught uh, tuberculosis, or contracted tuberculosis, I think is the right word, and ended up in what they called the death ward. But the Lord miraculously saved him out of that. And then in 1968... Uh, or sorry, uh, 1964, his friends raised enough money for him to be released. And in 1965, the Romanians agreed to a swap and he was sent to the West. He agreed to go only because his health was utterly broken at that point in time and also because his friends told him Richard... You need to tell the world what is happening behind the Iron Curtain to Christians. You need to tell them to pray, and you need to tell them not to believe the lies the Russians were peddling. And so Richard Wormbrand came to the West. And one of the most electrifying moments in his career was when he was invited to testify before the U.S. uh, Congress in 1965. So on May 6th, he sat in a Senate hearing room And he delivered his testimony. You can still, I think on YouTube, you can find uh, a um, a TV broadcast of it, black and white. Now, when he gave his testimony, he talked about what the Russians and the Romanians were doing, the Romanian communists were doing to Christians in that particular country. But the man who was leading the uh, hearing, Senator Dodd, knew that there would be many uh, in America who would not believe it. Then, as now, there were communist sympathizers in the United States, who thought that this was just a Christian manufacturing <laughs> lies about their beloved system of government, communism? And so Senator Dodd invited him to stand up and to take off his shirt. He apologized to the ladies in the room, and he did so. And he revealed as he took it off 17 years of relentless torture, wounds in his body, holes even in his body that had been made as he was constantly tortured. He said, when he was asked, were those wounds made with knives? He said, they tortured by all means. They beat until they broke the bones. They used red hot irons. They used knives. They used everything. And what was the first thing if not, is not they beat, not what they did, but how they did it. They interrogated you very politely. And if you did not wish to say what they asked, they said, well, we have the first. On the 15th, you will be beaten and tortured at 10 o'clock. In the evening. Imagine what 14 days were like after this. We have had prisoners who, during this time, which has been given to them, knocked at the door. I can't bear it. I will say everything before they have been tortured. It was a declaration to the world of what was actually going on. But more than that, it was also a display of what true love to Christ looked like. This man bore in his own body, in the wounds that he bore, a living testimony to the love of Christ. He, uh, he mentioned uh, in his testimony also that they had come to a, a compromise with the guards. The guards had said, if you continue to preach to your fellow prisoners, you will receive a beating. We have to beat you for that. And he said, well, the Lord has sent me and I, I have to declare his word. So I'll make a deal with you. I'll do the preaching and you do the beating. And he said, everybody was happy with the arrangement. We love to preach and they love to beat us. So that was what he said. But he had something to boast in. And what was that? He had the cross of Christ. And those wounds that he bore for Christ, he bore out of love. He was not compelled to love Christ, but he did so willingly. He was willing to endure all for his sake he was not the first, obviously, Christian who was willing to do that, the first follower of Christ who was willing to be persecuted for the sake of his Lord who had given so much for him. Paul here, speaking to the Galatians, was a man like that as well. He, too, had suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. And we remember that the letter to the Galatians was actually one, of his, if not his first epistle, his first letter to a Christian congregation, one of the first. But he already bore in his body. Those wounds that he had received for the sake of Jesus Christ. And now he had written to them, not just out of love for them. Obviously, as you've gone through his letter to the Galatians, I hope you've seen the love of Paul for these little lambs of Christ who he was ministering to. But I hope you also saw that it came out of the love for Christ that overwhelmed him, that animated him, that flowed through him and the joy that he had in Jesus. One of the things that frustrated him so much was that he was dealing with people who were misleading the Galatian congregation and desiring to rob them of their joy, rob them of their liberty, bring them into bondage, and make them an unhappy people once again. Now, as we started out in the section that we just read a little while ago, you'll notice that Paul talks about the big letters that he wrote in his own hand. What's he talking about there? Well... Paul wrote most of his letters through secretaries. He dictates. That's one of the reasons why you see that that kind of change of, of subject. It's not like he had spell check and he's, you know, he's got the paragraphs in line under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Things would come to him and he would include them in his letter. And then amuensis, that is the secretary who was taking down his words, whether it was Silas or Titus or someone else, would write down those things that he was saying so normally it was somebody else's hand that was on the scrolls that uh, had been delivered it was his words but they're writing but in this case Paul says look I'm writing this to you in my own hand now there, uh, commentators differ as to whether or not he's referring to the entire letter or to just this portion I think he's probably referring to to just this portion Why does he comment on large letters? Did he write to them in all caps because he was shouting all the time? No, the answer is probably that's not the case. Uh, Why then does he mark, uh, out the fact that these are very large letters? Well, it's probably because he had an eye problem. You remember in Galatians 4.15, he said to them, what then was the blessing you enjoyed for I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes? and given them to me, why? Because his own eyesight was probably very, very bad. And so he writes in, uh, in big Greek letters near the end of the, of the letter so they can see, this is Paul's handwriting. I hate myself writing cards to members of the congregation, not because I hate writing to members of the congregation, but because my writing is so terrible. I used to write on the uh, whiteboard in script, and I finally, after about two years of people saying, What is that? I I, I went over to you know block letters and so on so that people would not only be able to see, but they'd be able to read my writing as well. Paul has written this and he says this because he wants them to know how invested he is in them. He's written this down for them. Well, brothers and sisters, he writes this marking out at the very end, drawing their attention to the fact that he's writing to them because He doesn't want them to be deceived anymore. And they are being deceived. They are being deceived by the Judaizers. He returns once again to that theme. The Judaizers who would get them to be circumcised if they were Gentiles. Who would call upon them to observe the ceremonial law. Those ceremonial laws that had been completed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he again tells them that these people who are telling them to do these things. These Christian Pharisees don't actually really care for them. And he notes that they, that is the Judaizers, they aren't being persecuted for the sake of the cross of Christ and the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles. We remember that persecution at this point was almost entirely from the Jews. When it did come from the Romans or the Gentiles, it came because Jews had stirred it up. It was usually Pharisees who were saying that Paul was denying the teaching of the Old Testament, that he was denying Moses, that he was going against the temple and all of the things that they held most dear. No, Paul was explaining the Messiah had come and all the things that the Old Testament pointed to had come to their culmination in him. But he was persecuted for that. The Judaizers, on the other hand, and Paul tells the Galatians, look, you see that they're not persecuted by their fellow Jews. Why are they not persecuted? Because they are not teaching that the Gentiles can be saved merely by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are, they are getting kudos from their fellow Jews by making the Gentiles into Jews before they become Christians. They are teaching you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the ceremonial law in order to be saved, And in fact, we we see that when Paul later on would return to Jerusalem after his second missionary trip, he was persuaded to take a Nazarite vow by the the church itself because it had spread throughout Jerusalem that this man hated Judaism, he hated the law, he hated the temple, and for their sakes, he was willing to do that. He took this Nazarite vow with other Jewish believers. He abstained from uh, drink for a while and then had his, his hair shorn off, and he went to burn it in the temple, and it was there that he was seized in Acts 21, 28. We read that the men who grabbed him cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. None of this was true. Paul was teaching, of course, in in sweet uh, synchronicity with the law. He was showing how it had reached its culmination in Christ. He was showing how Jesus was the long promised Messiah, the hope of Israel, how he had come. And he was also telling the Gentiles that they, too, were included now in the kingdom, that through faith in Christ, they, too, could become sons of Abraham, inheritors of the faith that was once delivered to the saints. The Judaizers, on the other hand, they are very eager to remain respectable. They did not want to be carved out of Jewish society. And so they make much, so much of circumcision in fact, they make circumcision and the other parts of the ceremonial law, the way that people ate, the way they dressed, the way they appeared, and so on, more important than the cross of Christ. Because they want to win themselves somehow back into the, to the graces of Jewish society. And they know, they knew very well that if they departed entirely, if they were to preach Christ unreservedly, as, as Paul did, if they were to invite Gentiles into the kingdom on the basis of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their, their baptism and their profession of faith in the presence of many witnesses, well, they knew that they would get nothing but abuse from their fellow Jews. But Paul points out that these people, when they do this, they aren't being legalists. So often when we think of the Pharisees, we think of legalism, that they were too strict in their application of the law. Both Christ and Paul said, oh, no, 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 you've got them wrong. It's not that they're too strict, it's they're hypocrites. They don't keep the law, but they pretend that they do. And what do they keep? They don't keep the law itself, for no man can keep the law. They're zealous for their traditions, their additions to the law. Jesus, you'll remember when he was was put on the spot by men who were very disturbed that the disciples didn't wash their hands before eating. And this isn't like when your mom said, wash before you come to the table and so on. And you should still be doing that, kids. Yes, this is not. You can't say, Mom, you're being a legalist when she tells you to <laughs> go wash your hands before dinner. What was happening there is that they would have a ceremonial washing. Perhaps they'd been in the market. Perhaps they touched a dead person accidentally, or they'd touched somebody who had touched a dead person, or they had come into contact accidentally with a Gentile or something like that, and they were now unclean, and they didn't know it, and their hands were unclean, and then the food that they touched would be unclean, and then the sin would get into them. How are we going to deal with that? Oh, well, we'll wash it off with a ceremonial washing before eating. Jesus didn't do that. Why didn't Jesus do that? Because it's not in God's Word. It was something that they added. And so Jesus, when he was asked about this, said rightly in Matthew 15 8, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Paul says the same thing. They're teaching you their traditions, but they're not teaching you the Word of God, they're not teaching you how to be saved. And like the Pharisees, and Jesus called them out as well, he said they bind heavy burdens to men, but they don't lift a finger themselves to help out. Matthew 23, 4, he said, for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They were people who told others that they had to do that which was impossible, which was keep the law. No fallen man can do that. Paul had come to say, Christ has kept the law. We are saved, but he is the perfect Savior, the Lamb of God, and if we believe on him, we shall be saved, for he has kept the law perfectly in our place. But what did these Judaizers want to do? They wanted to glory in circumcision. He says this. He says, Paul tells them, that they glory in circumcision in the same way that many Christians today or some Christian churches will glory in baptisms. They count the number of baptisms that they've done in the year, and they, they talk about their baptism statistics as though these are things that they have done. That kind of boasting isn't good, admittedly, but at least baptism is a New Testament ordinance. These people, he says, they're, they're boasting about your circumcision. They're boasting in your flesh. It's ridiculous. It's like they're tallying foreskins, not to put it too harshly, and saying that by these things we have shown our righteousness. It's wrong. He, in the meantime, is saying that the things that they should be boasting in are not the things that they had done. The things that they should be boasting in are the things that Christ has already accomplished. His boasting That is, Paul's boasting was in Christ and in the crucifixion, in his willingness to go to the cross, to bear our sins on his shoulders, to lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice. But when he talked about the cross, he was was aware that the Jews saw this as an offense. So did the world, as Paul later wrote to the the Colossians in Colossians 1.23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, when we talk about the cross, we think of it as a Christian symbol. We think of it almost entirely in Christian terms. But you've got to remember that back then, for them, cross was the equivalent of electric chair in the 1950s and 1960s in America. It was a sign of shame. It was the way that traitors were put to death. It was the lowest form, the harshest form of death. And therefore, it was naturally a stumbling block to the heart of man that anybody had been crucified and died that way. But that wasn't what irritated the Judaizers the most, that it was a a symbol of treason and so on. The Judaizers hated it because it was a declaration of man's inadequacy. It was a declaration to the world of man's inability to save himself. Because the Judaizers, what did they teach? They said, you started with faith in Jesus. That's good. But then you continued in the way of salvation by your own law keeping, by your own doing the works of the law. And then hopefully the day would come when you had done enough of those works of the law to be found worthy to enter into heaven. There are many works-based perversions of the Christian faith that still teach that kind of thing. Sadly, Roman Catholicism to this very day teaches that our salvation is on the basis of works and faith, not faith alone. That it is necessary for us to earn our way into heaven, something that men can't do. Or to buy our way into heaven if we're in purgatory. We remember that Luther raged against the abuses that occurred when Tetzel went into, that is uh, the Pope's uh, indulgence seller, went into various towns and declared, when the coin in the coffer clinks, the soul to heaven springs, saying that you could buy your grandmother or your relations out of purgatory, a place that did not exist merely to enrich Rome. And now these Judaizers, they were teaching that men could, by their own efforts, win heaven. And Paul says, no, no, That the, the cross shows us our inability to win heaven. Paul wrote in Romans, and I would invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. He wrote this, starting in verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He says to the world that man in of himself has no ability to save himself or even to contribute to his salvation. Salvation is of God. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. There was no other way. You remember in Gethsemane, he bowed down and he said to the Father that if it was possible to take the cup away from him, what was he talking about? The cup of the Father's wrath because he knew that in order for us to be saved, he would have to drink that wrath down to its very dregs that he would have to go through the pains of hell in our place. But it was not possible. If it were possible, do you not think that a loving father would, have take, would not have taken the, the cup away from his son and said, yes, yes, it is, it is possible for people to be saved by their law-keeping, by keeping to a, uh, an outrageously high standard, or through faith in, in what Muhammad will preach someday, or Buddha, or some of the other cult leaders who told us that our faith is... Or our salvation is by works rather than faith in Christ. But it wasn't possible. So Christ had to go to the cross. He had to lay down his body as an atoning sacrifice. And Paul says because of this, because of what Christ has done, the world is crucified to him. He does not say, note this, I crucified the world. He says the world has been crucified to me. In other words... He bears a testimony to the fact that the Holy Spirit, by means of the doctrine of the cross, has wrought a mighty work in his soul, has changed his perspective entirely. The world and all of its pleasures, including the honors and, and all of the acclaim that he once competed for himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, all of those things are as nothing to him. The things of the world now, he says, they draw the soul away from Christ. They've lost their charm for me. I I hate them. Paul uh, sums that up elsewhere. And Calvin, uh, speaking of what Paul means, puts it this way, and he gets a very very well. The world is crucified to me. This exactly agrees with the language which he employs on another occasion. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless and I can count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. That's Philippians 3 7 and 8. To crucify the world is to treat it with contempt and disdain. Paul Crucified the world. It was crucified to him. He did not care about the things that it could offer. And because of this, Paul cares nothing for circumcision, uh, nor for uncircumcision. He says they don't matter. They deal with the body. What happens to the body, ultimately, this side of glory is of no importance. Of course, someday the body will be raised up. But what is critical, he notes, is being born again. Becoming a new creation through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, not putting people on a treadmill of works, 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 trying in the flesh to finally please God. No, rather, it is to accept the salvation that God has given. We all know how foolish it would be for somebody to, to say that I, I have to work for my birthday presents. I'm, I, I, I've got to, to do these various works for the, for the things that are given to me. On a yearly basis, not because of anything I've done, but because of the grace of my friends and my family. And so, too, we do not earn our salvation, brothers and sisters. There are some who are still trying to do it, but they'll never accomplish it. It's as impossible, as, as um, Whitfield said, as climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. It's impossible. But he says, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are new creatures in Christ. We have new life. We have new hearts. We have new desires. We have a new eternity before us. Everything has changed. And then he pronounces a blessing, doesn't he, on, the, on those who are like him, part of that new creation. He says in verse 16, and as many walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, that's an interesting phrase that he uses there, the Israel of God. Now, he's not speaking of the here the Israel of the flesh, the Israel simply of descent from Abraham. <laughs> Elsewhere, we remember Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 2 8, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. And before he had taught the Galatians in Galatians 3 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham before saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. What are you saying, Paul? Well, what he's saying is that to be a true Jew, to be part of the Israel of God, was to believe on the same Messiah and to embrace the same promises that Abraham had believed long ago. You remember in John chapter 8, Jesus says to To the Jewish people, he says, your father, Abraham, saw my day and he rejoiced. Abraham believed God. He believed the promises. He believed in the promise of the redeemer, the blessing that would actually be a descendant of his. Very God and very man at the same time who would come to save all those whom the father had elected. And so Paul says, if you are one of those people, if you have put on Christ, if you are in him. He says in verse 28 of chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the amazing thing. We may have no Jewish blood whatsoever. I am told that I probably have some on my father's side from Eastern Europe. At some point we hopped the, uh, the channel, probably a little gypsy and some other things that... My father does not want me to uh, research and find out about. It. So little little horse teeth here and there probably. But ultimately, my being a child of God, part of the Israel of God does not depend upon my physical descent. Neither does yours. You are part of the Israel of God through faith in Israel's Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Membership in the Israel of God is by faith, Paul says, not by birth. And finally, he says, don't trouble me anymore. You want proof that I don't care what men say about me, says Paul, look at my scars. At some point, go to 2 Corinthians 11 and read through all of the ways that Paul recounts how he was persecuted to the Corinthian. Congregation, how he, he was given 40 stripes minus one, beaten with rods, stone, uh, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day in the deeps, and perils of waters, perils of robbers. And he goes through this long list of the things that he had received from men because of his love for Christ. But keep in mind, he marked these not as a oh, look at all the nasty things they've done to me. Rather, for them, they were badges of honor. He felt like he had been honored by Christ, that he'd been found worthy to suffer for him. That's how the apostles thought about it. That's how Richard Wormbrown thought about it as well. Let me make some applications of this for you. The Judaizers obviously tried to avoid persecution in their own day by being law friendly, by being law correct, if I can put it that way, in the midst of their society. And they tried to make the gospel as, as watered down and as light as possible so as not to offend their fellow Jews. And I must say this. Today, many Christians are trying to do the same thing. Trying to do what? Well, they're trying to avoid persecution by being as politically correct as they possibly can, as theologically inoffensive as possible, and as being as gospel light L-I-T-E, not L-I-G-H-T, which is the only gospel light that we should have. They're trying to be that way. So what do we do? We don't step on men's toes when they proclaim that immorality is good. We don't declare, no, there is no other way of being saved. We say, yes, yes, I'm enthusiastic about Jesus, but we don't point out that people who don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are going to hell. Martin Luther said that this was a deadly form of compromise. I'll give you one of his quotes. He said, if I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly, I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldiers proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Now, you who have served in the military understand how this works. If the battle is raging hottest in one area, and that's the one place you don't want to be, but you're saying, oh, no, I'll serve overtime anywhere else on the line, men know instinctively what that is. It's cowardice. We're afraid. When we won't confront the world with the truth, we are being cowards. And not only that, we are being unkind. We are being heartless. A YouTube that amazed me when it when it came out uh, was uh, Penn Teller, the uh, the the giant atheist magician. Um, no, Penn Jillette, not Penn Teller. It's Penn and Teller is the group. But Penn Jillette, He uh, he talked about a time that a fellow uh, had helped him out in one of his, his magic acts. He picked him from the audience. And afterwards, the man had come up and presented him with a Bible, said, I want you to have this. And he'd written a, you know, a gospel presentation in the beginning and so on. And the man said that, you know, although Penn Jillette hates Christ and Christianity and so on, he was impressed by that. And he said... You know, it it always amazes me that Christians don't evangelize. If they honestly believe these things, if they believe that people are going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them? How much would you have to hate a member of your family if you knew that they they were going to be burned, that there was a fire that was going to break out at some point, and they were going to be burned, not to warn them about that? You see your child reaching for the range, you know, and you're like, oh, well, they'll learn one way or the other. Would you do that? Or would you say, don't touch that! Whack their hand away if you possibly could. That's kindness, brothers and sisters, to tell others what's happening. So by not mentioning the truth, by not telling people about the gospel, by not telling people that wickedness is still wickedness, that abortion is murder, that homosexuality is a violation of the seventh commandment, and that it's not good. And by going through this, this long and deadly process of compromise, 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 what are we doing actually? We are actually, at that point in time, siding with the devil. We are changing, our, we're turning our coat, as the saying went, and appearing to be on the other side when we compromise that way. Richard Wormbrand, when the communists came in, they. they organized uh, a meeting, a conference of all the churches. And they were told by the Romanian uh, political leaders who were puppets of the Russians, they were told that what they had to do was stand up and they had to declare the praises of Marx and how they were on board with the communist revolution and how Christianity and Marxism were absolutely compatible and that they would not say anything that went against the dictums of Karl Marx and so on. And Wormbrand attended this conference with his wife Sabina, and it was disgusted as Christian leader after Christian leader after Christian leader stood up and they did exactly what they were told. Why? Because they were afraid. They were scared, silly. They knew what the Russians did, and they knew what their Ramonian, uh, Ramonian, <laughs> Romanian lackeys were willing to do. Wormbrand writes My wife and I were present at this conference. Sabina told me, Richard, Stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They're spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so, you lose your husband. She replied, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. Brothers and sisters, women, wives, I pray that you would say that kind of thing to your husband as well. I pray that you would encourage him as a true helpmeet to stand firm in the faith. If he is thinking of compromise... I pray that you would come alongside and and, uh, and encourage him not to be a compromiser. I pray you would do the same with your kids. They are under so much pressure, whether or not we realize it, every single day to compromise their faith, to compromise on the truth, to be liked, to not be called out and persecuted on social media seems like a very little thing. Oh, like somebody called you names on, on, on Facebook. Or Kids don't use Facebook. That's for grandpas like me. Um, on Instagram or on TikTok or on whatever new device or social media. Man, I am really dating myself, aren't I? Oh, well, I'll stop. But we think it's a small thing. But for them, it's everything. It's their social credit going up in smoke in a few seconds. And they feel it deeply. Encourage them. Come alongside them. Encourage them not to compromise and to stand firm. You don't compromise your faith. Be a Paul. Be a wormbrand. Stand firm. Finally, I hope, I hope you're one of the people that Paul pronounced that benediction on in verse 16. Those people who are part of the Israel of God. So I have to ask this question. And it's the most important question that I can ask. Are you a new creation in the way that he he speaks of being a new creation? Have you been renewed in Christ? Do you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you? To use the simple language, have you been born again? Have you closed with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have that new heart, those new desires that Paul spoke of? Is the world truly crucified to you? Do you boast in Christ and in Him crucified? Is He your all in all? And is the world nothing at all by comparison? Do you not care if people call you a Jesus freak? Is it your grand desire to preach Christ and Him crucified wherever you are, to declare that you love Him and that He loves you and that you would give everything for Him because He gave everything? for you are you willing to do that do you know him this day if you don't then I hate to tell you you are in a tremendously perilous situation you may think of yourself as a good person you may be hoping to get to heaven by your works you may be hoping naively that there is no heaven that Christ lied about everything that this is all tradition and so on that there's no truth to it, but I have to tell you it's true. It is absolutely true. The apostles preached what they knew. They knew that Christ had risen from the dead and they told the world the message of salvation through faith in him. The long-desired one of Israel, the Redeemer, had come and there was one way and only one way to be reconciled to God the Father and it's through him. There is one mediator between God and man and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that this day, if you have not yet closed with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not yet surrendered to him, that you would do so, that you would stop striving, that you would put down the the heavy burden that's on your shoulders. One thing Christ said is that his yoke is light and his burden is easy. It truly is. Having taken that burden on my own shoulders in 1993, I have to tell you it is as nothing compared to the heavy burden of the sins that I was toting around before then that awful, awful burden that would have sunk me lower than the grave. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you are truly brothers and sisters and that you are following the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 12, Paul, uh, well, we don't know that it was Paul. If I say it's Paul, I'm actually making a declaration that many people would disagree with. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I pray that you've already done that. But if not, let's, let's go before the Lord and ask that he would give you the ability to do so. God, our Father, we thank you that you are the one who works in the lives of people who were once rebels and enemies who were absolutely opposed to you. You worked in the life of Saul, the Pharisee, to make him into Paul, the apostle. You worked in the life of Richard Wormbrand, turning him to Jesus Christ and giving him the power to endure all the most awful, awful torture for your name's sake. And you worked in my life, taking away the scales that have blinded me, turning me away from my stupid opposition to life and light and Christ. And you made me into a follower. And I know you're still doing that work. You're still the sovereign God who changes men's hearts. I pray this day that if there's anyone listening to me, either here or online, who doesn't know you, who hasn't closed with you, that you would break down their resistance, that you would show them your love for them, Your desire that they would come to you. We know, O Lord, that ultimately if they do come, it's because you've done that wonderful heart-changing work within them, that you have regenerated them. We know that faith does not precede regeneration because dead men can't do anything, but you give us life, Lord. And we cry out for those who have not yet come. Give them life. Let these dead bones live. Cause them to believe on you. Help them not to trust in their heritage. I know there are some who are hearing me who have not closed with you who are trusting in the fact that they are covenant kids, that they've been raised in Christian families. But I pray, oh Lord, that you would show them that their parents' faith, while it is a wonderful thing, cannot get them into heaven. Their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ must be personal. Therefore, I, I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to close with you. Oh Lord, work in them that wonderful work of new life that only you can do.